Welcome to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders, hosted by Mike Sakopoulos and produced by the American Association for Physician Leadership. COVID-19 has forever changed our world. We think of those patients with COVID-19 that have died, hundreds of thousands of them in this country. Sadly, second and third order consequences of the pandemic have been deadly too. Today, we will be talking about how the COVID-19 crisis in one ER impacted a physician and her family. This is a story that is tragic, instructive, and ultimately inspirational. Join me for the story of Dr. Lorna Breen and her eponymous foundation, next on Sound Practice. My guest today is Corey Feist. He has served as the Chief Executive Officer of the University of Virginia Physician Group, which is a medical group comprised of more than 1,200 physicians and advanced practice providers. Currently, Mr. Feist serves as the co-founder of the Dr. Lorna Brain Heroes Foundation. Corey Feist, welcome to Sound Practice. Thank you for having me today. It is our absolute pleasure to be with you. For those in our audience that are unfamiliar with Orna's brain's story, could you tell us a little bit? Sure. Uh, Dr. Lorna Breen is my sister-in-law, um, and uh, she was as unique in some ways as her, as her name. She was the crazy aunt to eight nieces and nephews, drove a convertible sports car in Manhattan where she worked her whole career, uh, was an avid snowboarder late comer to the cello and loved salsa dancing and was really just larger than life uh, and in some ways uh, you know lorna was straight down the middle of the fairway uh, if you will uh, poor golf analogy because i'm never in the fairway but just you can uh, you can understand straight down the middle of the fairway um in terms of her medical career uh, deciding to be a physician in high school and then uh, getting her way working her way uh, to cornell as an undergraduate then to the Medical College of Virginia for a master's and ultimately her MD. And then she was uh, double boarded in internal medicine and emergency medicine, uh, having trained at Long Island Jewish Hospital. Her entire life, she wanted to be a physician in New York and she really was living that dream in um, 2020, which is when she died. Lorna was a uh, medical director, the medical director for the Allen Hospital, which is one of the New York Presbyterian hospitals. Uh, and she was the medical director of that emergency department uh, for quite a number of years. She was also in the process of getting her MBA uh, back at Cornell um, on the nights and weekends that she was not uh, working full time as an attending physician, as well as uh, in this administrative role. Lorna died by suicide on April 26th, following a short bout of COVID herself. Um, in May, I'm sorry, in March of uh, 2020, we were on, a, on our annual ski trip with Lorna because she loved to impart uh, her knowledge of the slopes with my children or to my children. Uh, since she never married or had children, Lorna was always um, excited to share her loves and passions with my kids who were really um, some of the two, two of the eight that she was really, really close to. So she left Big Sky, Montana, went right back um, to 
taking care of patients in mid-March, right, when the peak was happening. And pretty shortly thereafter, contracted COVID herself, was not hospitalized, but was quite sick with COVID, all kind of the traditional symptoms we were learning about at the time. And in fact, uh, because she was so concerned about her her oxygen levels, uh, she asked us um, to help her get a blood, blood oximeter, which we were able to secure through Amazon of all places and, and sent it to her apartment where she really convalesced on her own for quite some time until she was without a fever for, for one day. And then she said, put me back on the schedule. April 1st was that day, 2020. And when she returned to the emergency department on April 1st, 2020, she conveyed two very clear messages to us. The first was that what she was observing was Armageddon. Not enough supplies, not enough beds, not enough oxygen. Uh, patients just literally stacking up in the hallways and in the in the waiting rooms, literally dying in their chairs. It was a degree of or a volume of death and dying that she and her career had never experienced. Remember, she was on very depleted faculties because she she just um, was coming off of COVID and probably still had it to some degree. Lorna um, also conveyed to us on that first day that she was having trouble keeping up, and her concerns were that her colleagues would notice she couldn't keep up, um, and it would impact her career negatively. Um, she had, was scheduled for 10, 12-hour shifts in a row, and she uh, wasn't working 12-hour shifts. She was working 15, 18-hour shifts um, and trying to take care of just this volume that she was observing, pushing through. As the days went on, uh, her challenges really um, increased. And on the 9th of April, she called my wife, Jennifer, who's her closest sibling in age, her younger sister, also an attorney um, down here in Charlottesville, and said that she was catatonic or wasn't, she didn't say she was catatonic. She basically said she couldn't get out of her chair and needed immediate help. This is the first time that Lorna had ever asked for help in her entire life. Um, had ever had ever really recognized or verbalized that that she couldn't function. Uh, she had never had any mental health issues. She had never been treated for inpatient or outpatient mental health treatment, and certainly had never been on any um, mental health medications. We Jennifer was able to um, identify very quickly a, a close friend of hers from medical school who rushed into New York. Uh, intervened, got Lorna in a car and just started driving south on I-95, where she connected with another colleague um, who uh, was a, a childhood friend of Lorna's who met her on the side of the road in Philadelphia. Um, all the while, Jennifer was driving as fast as she possibly could north um, to get her big sister. Where she picked her up on the side of the road outside of Baltimore, Maryland, and immediately recognized that her sister was in really rough shape. Uh, luckily, the physician who had driven her south was actually a psychiatrist by training and had called Jennifer while she was en route um, and said Lorna needed inpatient help. And so Jennifer drove her down to Charlottesville, Virginia, about a three-hour drive from where she'd picked her up and directly to the emergency department where she was then admitted to the inpatient psych unit her first and only um, inpatient and or, you know, any any mental health treatment of her life. About, so that was on the 9th of, of um, April. And about two days later, Lorna started calling saying she was feeling better, but you needed to recognize that 
this, now that she'd received mental health treatment, she was going to lose her license to practice medicine and she'd never be able to practice again. And we needed to be aware of that. And she continued on that very negative uh, front for quite some time. She was convinced beyond any doubt that this was going to impact her ability to practice medicine. And as two attorneys, we were uh, telling her that, you know, this is 2020, that, that doesn't happen anymore. That's not something that you could ever even worry about. We just need to get you better. Um, and so after about a 10 day stay in, in the inpatient psych unit, she was discharged, she was doing a lot better. And then tragically on the 26th of April, um, she died by suicide. One of, the, one of the things that happened right after she died by suicide was there was a significant amount of publicity. And so, uh, and in fact, over the family's objection, uh, a major New York newspaper published her cause of death. And we really didn't want anyone to know about this. Uh, you know, really, there were there was there were two real reasons for that. The first was that we were convinced that COVID had impacted her brain, and at that point, there was only very little information coming out about the impact of COVID on 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 hospitalized uh, COVID patients. And we were convinced that something had happened here uh, because we'd just seen her. We were literally just with her and she was great. I mean, she's running an emergency department. She was installing, working on the installation of an electronic medical record. She was getting her MBA. She was at the top of her game. And then this person that we saw um, was not the same. But then, you know, even, even more to the point, we were just overcome with the stigma of suicide. Like so many, uh, we were ill prepared for it, and then on the other side, we just we just didn't want to talk about it. But we were not given that choice, um, and so 12 hours after she died, this was front page news. And what I would share with you as I kind of wrap up this answer is that it was really because of the response from the medical community to her death that we began looking at how we could make an impact. Uh, through a foundation or otherwise on this issue, having, you know, for me, I'd spent over 20 years in healthcare in, in both in a legal capacity as well as, a, as an executive capacity looking out for or thinking I was looking out for our physicians and our advanced practice professionals. But um, I really did not have any appreciation for just how challenging um, life was, if you will, or life continues to be for, for many, uh, many in the healthcare field. So that that's Lorna, an amazing, an amazing physician, top of her game, uh, lost tragically, and in a highly preventable, highly preventable uh, set of circumstances. How many physicians kill themselves each year? Yeah. So after Lorna died, we learned some staggering statistics on on death by suicide in the medical community, both doctors and nurses. Uh, we learned that twice the national average uh, physicians are dying by suicide, as well as nurses. From a doctor perspective, it's roughly 350 to 400 that died by suicide each year prior to the pandemic, a number that we were completely blown away from, especially when you think about how many, how many doctors are in a medical school class. It's losing multiple medical school classes every single year. We also learned that there's this thing called National Physician Suicide Awareness Day, which we had not, didn't even know was a day, it's September 17th. And so we started working actually with the founders of NPSA Day to create a new website called npsaday.org, which has lots of suicide prevention resources. Uh, but it's it, it continues to be a significant issue for the medical community. 
you helped create the Dr. Warner Breen Heroes Foundation. Can you tell us about the foundation? Absolutely. So as I said, after she died, we were just, you know, we were in shock and didn't really, we just wanted to draw the shades and just grieve. But what we, what happened was just, I would say this remarkable outpouring, not just of support, which you would, you would think to some degree when something like this happens, but also our, I would categorize it as a cry for help. And so many examples from doctors themselves, nurses, family members, friends, who just said, this is this has got to change. And so in June of 2020, only a handful of months after Lorna died, Jennifer and I created this, this uh, tax-exempt organization called the Dr. Lorna Breen Heroes Foundation, which is at drlornabreen.org. And we did that with um, without really knowing exactly what areas of focus we would even begin with. We just we just knew we needed to step into this arena. Our areas of focus have really found themselves into three main buckets. The first is awareness. Uh, we've done just an incredible amount of speaking and writing and uh, public appearances. We've reached over 150 million people with that awareness. In addition, we've heard from just dozens and dozens of doctors and nurses who've said, hey, this helped me recognize in myself that I needed to do something different. It's also uh, speaking with lots of hospital administrators, they've certainly come to understand the connection between the work and the worker, if you will, and the impact that the work really has on the workforce. In addition to that, we've, we've spent a lot of time advancing solutions. Uh, launching a launching an initiative called All In Wellbeing First for Healthcare with a whole cohort of m major associations that span the healthcare community, like the AMA, like the American College of Emergency Physicians, like the American Hospital Association, the American Nursing Foundation, and the list goes on and on. The Schwartz Center for Compassionate Care, all of these organizations coming together to try to advance best practice solutions across the healthcare community. And then finally, we have been doing quite a bit of advocacy work, both at the federal, state, and local levels, because there are so many layers to this onion from a policy perspective. We absolutely need need to and uh, needed to really step into that arena. We're invited to as well uh, by our United States Senator Tim Kaine uh, when he reached out to us shortly after Lorna died. So it's been it's been um, less than two years since we started and we have tried to make an immediate and long-term impact on these issues for the betterment of the healthcare workforce. I've read that Lorna worked to get eight hours of sleep a night, at times prioritizing sleep ahead of social activities. And I, I bring this up because like mental health, sleep is often um, not treated uh, as it should be by uh, physicians. Every healthcare provider knows how important sleep and mental health are, uh, but the healthcare system systematically devalues both, it seems to me, at least as far as their, their employees. Uh, it, it's a do as I say, not as I do situation. Why do you think that is? A couple of things. You know, first of all, the training of the healthcare workforce is incredibly intensive in order to observe what is going on comprehensively with a patient. Um, 
you know, residents and medical students are up all night. I mean, patients, patients don't fitly fit nicely, uh, especially in patients between the nine and five uh, working hours. So I think it starts early in the career. And it's an expectation that that's what you do. And you put others in front of self uh, your whole life. I mean, it's, it's, I've heard so many examples about how physicians in particular have put off self-care for whatever reason, worked through illness, you know, uh, worked, worked through uh, morning sickness, stepping out into hallways and getting sick with morning sickness while rounding patients um, and chewing some gum to try to make it look like uh, all is well. I think it's a cultural statement, and it's also what has been um, just a traditional part of the training. What what I what I was what I often reflect upon is that you know the the work week for residents was capped at eighty hours in the early two thousands, and remember when that was going in. What I've often wondered is uh, whether some magical thing happens in uh, when you transition from a resident to a, to an attending physician that, that all of a sudden you can work over 80 hours a week and not have the impacts negatively on yourself and potentially your patients that the concerns uh, for the, you know, that, that are applicable to the concerns that gave rise to that 80 hour work week, obviously being a little sarcastic in that statement, it's just, it's just not, it's not really sensical. It's certainly not sustainable. And I think Part of what we've seen over the last 10, 15 years is really an evolution towards physicians coming out of training and asking for a different lifestyle. And I, and I, now that I've spoken again with thousands and thousands across the country, I certainly would say that for medical students and residents, they have a different expectation as to how their life balance, their work-life balance is going to be um, as they come out in, into the profession. But I think a lot of it is cultural. It's related to training and. Um, I think we've got to find alternative ways to um, take care of our healthcare workforce, so they can take so so they can do their best job taking care of patients. Is physician burnout in part a result of physicians becoming employees instead of the traditional status of owners of their practice? Prior to the pandemic. I think one of the seminal articles, and it's on our website, um, it was championed by Harvard School of Public Health, really looked at these issues of root cause. And I would say the two that stand out most are administrative burden, so uh, you know, really electronic medical record, and then the loss of control and, and, and the commensurate uh, compensation models that kind of came with that productivity. And so certainly a contributor to it. Um, when, I, when I look at the most recent Medscape survey data that came out January 21st, 2022, the number one by far um, reason for burnout continues to be the administrative burden on the workforce. Um, and then, you know, kind of following that is this, you know, lack of respect from administration, colleagues, you know, peers, that sort of thing, which, which, which in that second bucket is likely in that, you know, loss of control. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's gotta be very challenging to, to work in an environment. I know I'm, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here. So, uh, if you will, uh, 
it's got to be incredibly challenging to work in an environment where you're 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 just trying to do your best every single day and you are relying on someone else who may not understand or be even understand what you're trying to do or even be aligned with your goals um, to achieve it. So uh, and, and I know it leads to things not just like burnout, but also moral injury, where physicians feel like they are doing less than they are trained to do and want to do for their patients because of some external circumstance um, that is not in their direct control. And, and certainly um, this wave of mergers and consolidations of health systems and medical groups across the country, uh, the employment of doctors has, has not helped the burnout. Um, it's, it, I'm sure it's been, I know it's been a catalyst for it. Let's talk about some good news. The Dr. Lorna Brain Healthcare Provider Protection Act. Tell me, what does the act do? Absolutely, and and I've got to, I've just got to say, um, we are honored beyond honored to have this law named after Lorna. This law, let's be very clear, is for all of the healthcare workforce, um, doctors, nurses, other health healthcare trainees. We are also just incredibly fortunate to have been, have created this first of its kind law with a bipartisan bicameral group of senators and members of the House of Representatives now signed into law March 18th, which was unbelievable in the Oval Office. Um, this is a piece of legislation that provides for $140 million of new programs. Um, and I'll bucket the legislation into kind of four categories. The first two are very similar. So they are grants for programs to, I'll, I'll generally categorize as look out for the well-being of the workforce um, in medical trainees, whether those be doctors or nurses or occupational therapists, physical therapists, you go, go down the list. The second category are, are grants for hospitals and health systems to look out for the current workforce. Uh, those two grant those two grant programs have actually already been allocated by HRSA. On January twentieth, the day before that Medscape survey, HRSA announced uh, workforce grants, and those healthcare workforce grants are coming from our new law. Our law hadn't been passed yet, so it didn't get the name Dr. Lorna Breen, you know, grants just yet, but uh, but it will in the future. But that's exactly what it was. So uh, 46 institutions across the country received those hundred, uh, actually 103 million of the 140. So going on to the third and fourth areas of the Lorna Breen Act, the third area is a nationwide awareness campaign uh, targeted at institutions as well as individuals to help them understand how to support the healthcare workforce, whether that be through programmatic changes in the operations of a hospital or uh, well-being programs to look out for mental health and, and other components. It's, it's really two prongs, and it's important people understand that because it's very clear that these issues, as we've just discussed, are not just about making the canary stronger using the canary in the coal mine analogy. We really need to redesign this coal mine. And so this, so this nationwide awareness campaign is intended to do that. And then finally, uh, a root cause study, which I think is gonna be very important. You might say, why do I even need to study this? We know the answers. Well. One of the things that's really important about it in, in speaking with members of Congress is this formal study will give us a guide to further enhance the Lorna Breen Act. We know that the Lorna Breen Act is a starting point. You got to start somewhere. And so we want this to be the foundation of more um, evolution, if you will, to work uh, healthcare workforce uh, well-being 
uh, focus legislation. And, and so we can expand on, you know, the Lorna Breen Act. It'll be Lorna Breen Act 2.0, 3.0, et cetera. But that, that study will give us a roadmap. We have received in really an overwhelmingly positive amount of feedback from the healthcare workforce since uh, the president signed the bill on the 18th of March, as well as uh, some ideas about er other areas to focus. And we've already kind of begun all that work. So it's, it's, it's an amazing thing to do. Most federal laws, new federal laws, take anywhere between five and 20 years to, to, to uh, come to fruition if they ever do. We did ours in about 18 months. It was, it was pretty amazing. Absolutely no doubt that you've scored a major victory with the enactment of the uh, Lorna Breen Healthcare Provider Protection Act, and, and certainly congratulations there. So you started to allude to this, but, but what's next? Well, um, from a policy perspective, what's next is uh, to help the Centers for Disease Control on this national awareness campaign, making sure that the awareness campaign includes both um, administrative changes or operational changes at a hospital or health system level, as well as supports that need to be put in place uh, that provide you know, uh, a series of supports, not just formal mental health counseling, but peer support programs and others. As I also referenced, participating in this study and making sure that this study really evolves into uh, further iterations of the Lorna Breen Act will be huge. And then working right now with states to evaluate their questions and their in their applications for licensure and re and relicensure, um, as well as hospitals. Now, let me digress for a second on that because in that same Medscape survey, when asked, when when thirteen thousand doctors across this country were asked, "Why aren't you getting help for what it, for either burnout or or um, or a mental health condition, the first answer was, I don't need to get help, I'm okay by myself. But the second, the third, the fourth answers were all around these, what I call structural barriers to accessing mental health care, uh, reporting to, to uh, licensing, um, licensing boards. Remember, that's what Lorna had articulated to us very clearly. Although I, I'm quick to point out, Lorna was incorrect about it. New York stated some of the best questions in the country in terms of licensure because they don't ask questions about prior mental health. And so one of the questions that we've asked ourselves is why didn't Lorna know that? She worked for New York, in New York her entire life. It wasn't new to her, uh, but this concept of state licensure and an impact of mental health on your ability to practice medicine is huge. Um, and I think it, 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 it's so widely held, it's often incorrect. So we've got to make sure that we're looking at the states where we are things are good are good already, and letting the workforce know that they're fine, and then those that there are about thirty of them that that need to be tweaked, and working to prioritize changes at the local levels in the state licensing boards. In addition to that, at the same time, we've got to work at credentialing questions because they've got the same impact. But there's over 6,000 hospitals in this country, and we need each one to just take a quick look at their bylaws and their questions in their, um, in their medical staff application and say, you know, what do these questions look like and how do we avoid violating the ADA mm -hmm. and how do we change them? So, so, and then again, how do we let the workforce know what we've done for them? 
Corey, as you know, the audience of sound practice is primarily physician leaders and healthcare executives. How can members of this community support the Heroes Foundation? Well, th thank you so much for for that. And, and I want to just pause for a second and let them know that we are thinking of them as well. We understand that everyone is burnt out. Um, they can go to our website. Uh, there's there's There are two really important things to take action right now. The first is uh, through the Take Action section at drlonerbreen.org. Certainly can make a donation to our work, which would be incredibly beneficial to us. We, we have made a great starting start and we want to be able to sustain. The second is in that same take action section, there's an opportunity for you to log in and send a quick note to your state licensing board to say, we need you to take a look at your questions. And then finally, I would say, look at our, uh, our initiative around all in wellbeing first for healthcare. These are free resources that you, ha you have at your disposal, including this thing we're calling the Wellbeing Five, which is a uh, data proven, if you will, uh, series of five things that every hospital in this country can and should be doing immediately to support the well-being of the workforce. And I'll point out quickly that four of the five are operational in nature. Only one is really related to uh, um, peer support programs and going beyond, uh, going beyond an employee assistance program. But what I would say is, if, if we could get uh, monetary support, uh, support with regard to uh, licensing boards and credentialing at, at the local hospital level, and then finally joining us in the all-in initiative, that'd be, that'd, that's my wish list. Our time's just about up, but I wanted to end not with another question, but with a word of thanks. You've made the practice of medicine better for physicians across the country. And that's certainly no small feat. Well done, sir. Thank you very much. Um, I'm humbled. I'm humbled to be sitting here with you and, and hearing that. So thank you so much. And I want to, I guess, make one last uh, shout out to all of those who have been working so tirelessly for all of us in the healthcare workforce. Uh, the Dr. Lorna Breen Heroes Foundation is here to support all of our healthcare workforce. And so thank you so much. We'll let that be the last word. My guest has been Corey Feist, co-founder of the Dr. Lorna Breen Heroes Foundation. Thank you so much for being on Sound Practice. Really my pleasure. Thanks for having me. My thanks to the creators and supporters of the Dr. Lorna Breen Heroes Foundation. They are addressing a serious problem which impacts physicians across the nation. My thanks also to the American Association for Physician Leadership for making this podcast possible. Please join me next time on Sound Practice. We release a new episode every other Wednesday. Bada bing, bada bada bing, bada You've been listening to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders. Check out the show notes for this episode at soundpracticepodcast.com. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, we'd love to hear them. Email us at info at soundpracticepodcast.com. Subscribe to Sound Practice wherever you listen to podcasts so you can automatically receive our episodes. And please rate us and comment on the podcast in iTunes and Google Play. Sound Practice is presented and produced by the team at American Association for Physician Leadership. We are the world's premier organization for all aspects of physician leadership in every sector of healthcare. Learn more at physicianleaders.org. Had his holy cow, but man.
Robin. Rip Capow.